Hello and welcome to the first of two special editions of the weekly Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast in which we take a step back from the normal cycle of weekly news and market movements to provide a background primer on the whole sector. What are investment trusts and what makes them so distinctive? seems a good moment in the heat of the summer to look at that in some detail and hopefully that will be of use to either first-time investors in investment trusts or if you're already invested in the sector there might be some value in a reprise of some of the more important features of investment trusts. I'm Jonathan Davis the editor of the investment trust handbook and with me who better to help us through this uh, session than Simon Elliott head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. I'm going to begin by saying that investment trusts uh, or investment companies, as they are also known, are an example of an investment fund, a collective vehicle in which uh, hundreds or even thousands of investors can pool their money and have it managed uh, on a tax advantageous basis by a professional investment management firm. The idea is not yet new. It's been around for years. Investment trusts have been around since the 19th century. But let's kick off, Simon, by asking you, what exactly is an investment company? or an investment trust, what's the difference, and uh, what is their legal status? So an investment company or an investment trust, which is technically a subset of investment companies, they are publicly listed companies, which is a very important aspect of them. But instead of being an operating company or offering a service, uh, they are designed to invest shareholders' money. uh, And they have a a legal status uh, under UK tax law that offers them some benefits Uh, And as you correctly say, they have been around for decades and decades, if not for a century and a half. So it has a long standing history. Let's just clear up that first point then about you said that investment trusts are a subset of investment companies. Why are they called investment trusts? uh, And is that still a relevant term to describe them these days? So the generic term for these type of funds, also known as closed funds or closed ended funds, are, are investment companies. But within that, there are probably four subsets of which investment trust is probably the best known. And investment trusts are recognised under uh, UK law, and they are effectively onshore. So they are UK domiciled companies that enjoy a tax benefit, not to be confused, but very similar to offshore investment companies, which are traded in the UK, but are domiciled invariably in the, in the Channel Islands, though it could be another offshore region. We also have a venture capital trust, which have their own special taxation status. And there are a few remaining split capital investment trusts that some people may remember. They were very popular about 20 years ago or so. Let's just also pick up another term. You said these are listed, by which you mean they're listed on a stock exchange. What does uh, listed on a stock exchange actually mean? What's involved in being listed on on a stock exchange? Every investment company is traded on exchange, and that might be the London uh, Stock Exchange or AIM, which is a separate market. And in fact, there is also the specialist funds segment uh, that was launched a number of years ago for those more specialist funds, not necessarily designed for retail uh, investors. But when we talk about a publicly listed company, these are companies that everybody can effectively buy and sell shares. uh, And you can do that using platforms or through a broker. Um, so it provides access to a whole wide range of investors. Because these investment trusts are companies, legally, they are companies, they therefore have a board of directors, and they therefore have a number of obligations, which like every other kind of company in the UK that is listed on a stock market. Let's talk about that. I can talk a little bit about the board of directors since I'm a director myself of investment trust, so I need to know this information <laughs> myself. But the good news for investment trust shareholders is that there are 
more than one layer of protection involved in this particular kind of structure. Because they're companies, investment trusts have to comply with the Companies Act, which is the main body of legislation governing the way that companies have to operate. The crucial element of a, of a company in the UK system is that they must have a board of directors who have a whole series of legally enforceable responsibilities, and they are laid down in a number of successive Companies Acts. Uh, of these, the most important really are, I don't mention a couple, they are to promote the success of the company, directors have to exercise independent judgment, take reasonable care, skill and diligence, and crucially for investment trust shareholders, they have to sign off the annual report, or at least they have to agree that the annual report is a true and fair reflection of the state of the company at the time of the annual report. In practice, that is different from the way that other funds are set up and managed. Perhaps you could just quickly say what the difference is between an investment trust and an open-ended fund in that particular respect, Simon. You make um, some excellent points, and I think it really gets to the heart of one of the key, in my mind at least, one of the key advantages of investment companies over the open-ended fund equivalents. At the end of the day, an investment company's future is tied up in the hands of sh- its shareholders. Their shareholders determine the board, the investment policy, all these things have to be approved by shareholders periodically. Whereas with an open-ended fund, although there are safeguards over the uh, investors, my personal view is they're not to the same extent as is the case for investment companies. So ultimately, you could say that the future of an open-ended fund is invariably determined, not necessarily, but invariably determined by the fund management company whose name is often ascribed to it. So I think that's a very important difference in emphasis. And I think that's why you see in the investment company space, uh, you do see changes of managers, and you do see corporate activity. And these are all things that shareholders get asked for their opinion on and really determine the direction of travel. You mentioned investment policy there. One of the jobs of the board of directors of investment trust is to determine the investment policy. And that has to be determined at the outset. And if you, uh, when you raise money, the first instance to start an investment trust, and then if you change that investment policy, do shareholders get a chance to say whether they like that change of policy or not? The answer is if there is a material change in the investment policy, uh, then absolutely shareholders have to be asked for permission. So uh, to give you a, a kind of current example of that, we have a fund called Witten Pacific that have uh, announced proposals for the appointment of Bailey Gifford as its investment manager. Now, technically, they don't need shareholder permission to do that. But what they do need permission for is to change the policy of that investment company in order for it to invest in China on a more growth mandate. So uh, in that case, shareholders have the final say. They need to vote uh, on a majority basis in order to make that change. I mean, I think it is fair, some might say it's a little contentious, but it's fair to contrast that experience with what's happened to the Woodford uh, Equity Income Fund, uh, which was a big cause celebre last year. First of all, Neil Woodford was uh, dismissed as the manager, and then the fund was actually closed down. A decision taken by what's called the uh, Authorised Corporate Director, which is a professional firm rather than a board of directors. And as I recall, unit holders in that fund had no say in that decision. Uh, I'm correct about that, am I not? That's absolutely correct. And as you well know, there was an investment trust that uh, Neil Woodford uh, was responsible for. But in that particular case, the board of directors saw fit to appoint Schroders to take over the the management of that particular investment trust. uh, And it was uh, relabeled or renamed accordingly to Schroder UK Public Private. And that would have been following consultation with shareholders. So the shareholders or the investors in the investment trust world um, have a huge sway in uh, determining the future direction of these companies. 
I mean, I think it's also fair to say, of course, that if you're an individual shareholder, you only have one vote for each uh, share that you have. And of course, you have to vote in order to have your, uh, your say reflected in the outcome. And I think many uh, private investors feel, well, there's not much point in my voting because there'll be some bigger shareholders who will always outvote me. But do you think that's fair? I mean, from a director's point of view, being one myself, it's something we're very conscious of that you actually have to think of all the shareholders, not just the largest ones on the register. And I think the, the knowledge of that and their legal duties is what actually helps to make the board of directors uh, act in the interests of all shareholders if they can, to the extent that they can. But in, in practice, how many people do vote in these situations? It's uh, very dependent on the nature of the shareholder base. So where there are some large uh, stakes off in the hands of institutional investors, turnout can be quite high. So one of the things we talked about in our recent podcast was the Gabelli Value Plus Plus. They had a continuation vote recently, and I think the turnout was over 90% in that particular instance. Where we have investment trusts with more uh, retail-orientated shareholder bases, uh, particularly where there's non-contentious votes, then the turnout is considerably lower. But again, I think you make an excellent point. Uh, in my experience, investment trust boards are increasingly aware of uh, the nature of their shareholders, particularly those of retail investors. And it's amazing uh, the response and the time and the energy that goes into replying to direct inquiries or questions from those retail investors. So just because in the great scheme of things, they may be relatively modest investments. I think the, the experience would suggest that um, boards are very minded to treat them very seriously and with, with a huge amount of respect. I think it's fair also to talk about the nature of the shareholder register in investment trust. You mentioned that. And it, it does vary a lot from company to company, depending on the size of the company and the kind of policy they're pursuing. But there have been some quite significant changes in the makeup of share registers over the last, say, 30 years. Essentially, we've seen the departure of most uh, pension funds and insurance companies who used to be quite significant shareholders in investment trusts uh, and used to delegate their investment management process to trusts in some cases. They've largely disappeared, but they have been replaced increasingly by wealth managers and uh, increasingly by private investors as well. So what's been the trend there? So if you go back 20 years ago, the direction of travel for institutional investors, as you say, the life company was one way. They were all exiting the sector. It wasn't uh, too long before that that it was allowed. Technically, it became tax efficient for investment trust companies to buy back their own shares. And this effectively allowed the exit for a large number of those institutional investors. Wealth managers have been on the register for any number of decades, and they've been a key supporter of the sector. Though, actually, there was a very good report out quite recently by a specialist outfit called Warhols that made the point that really the, the wealth managers, particularly the larger, better known ones, have been in a decline. They've been net sellers of investment trust companies. And the growth has really come from what we call retail investors. So effectively, they're everyday investors, if you will, um, who are using platforms such as AJ Bell, Hargreaves, Lansdowne Interactive Investor to, to access investment trusts. And that's where the real growth in terms of the, the shareholder basis of these investment trust companies has, has happened over the last few years. Yes, I think it's also fair to say that one of the reasons that is uh, forcing some of the wealth managers to come off the share register of investment trusts is partly the effect of regulation, but also the fact that a lot of these firms, many of whom started off as stockbroking firms, have been consolidating, they've been merging, they've been getting bigger to try and get economies of scale. And therefore, they feel they need investment trusts they invest in to be of a certain size. Perhaps you could say something about that. What is the trend there? And how far has that contributed to the fact that wealth management firms are withdrawing at the margin anyway from shareholder registers? 
at one stage, most uh, reputable wealth managers would say they wouldn't consider investing in an investment trust company with a market cap of below, say, £100 million. That was the kind of the level at which they, they deemed that the shares became too illiquid. There were always exceptions, obviously, but the spread's too wide between the bid and the offer price. Uh, they were too illiquid. And so £100 million was the kind of minimum size. Now the larger wealth managers will say that probably it's nearer to 400 if not £500 million, which actually rules out quite a large proportion of the investment trust universe. And I think really the story here is that the larger wealth managers, and you're absolutely right, there's been huge consolidation, particularly at the top end, have to a greater or lesser extent outgrown the investment trust sector. So the number of names that they can realistically uh, look to get their clients' money in has become very, very limited. I think also that the way that they operate, the larger wealth managers, they've moved away considerably from their stockbroker routes. So everything goes through investment committees, it's subject to approved lists. And what that means is that they can't simply respond to lines of stock necessarily in the marketplace. So they've lost their ability to be nimble and respond when uh, lines of stock do become available. Aware that there's some other potential uh, sources of demand for investment trusts, and I know this is something that exercises the industry uh, quite a lot. One obvious route for them to go down is to try and persuade more IFAs, independent financial advisors, to look at investment trusts and use them for their clients. IFAs tend to be rather smaller firms than uh, the big wealth managers, and you would think that it would be quite logical for them to uh, invest in investment trusts as well as, but in practice, they tend not to do that. I think that has a lot to do with something called RDR, or the Retail Distribution Review, which is a piece of regulation that came in uh, about seven years ago. Perhaps you could explain what RDR was and why that prevented IFAs and others in the past from investing in investment trusts, and whether you see there's any potential for that to change in the future. So what RDR addressed, amongst other things, was how IFAs, independent financial advisors, were uh, compensated for their advice. So effectively, broadly speaking, there were two ways they could either take an upfront fee for their advice, or they could receive trail commission based on their uh, investment advice. So the classic example would be they would invest someone's pension in an open-ended fund. And on that basis, they would receive commission that would run off over any number of years. Now, um, the regulator recognized that there were some conflicts with that and sought to remove that. So that no longer uh, exists. Now, investment trust companies were at a disadvantage in that old regime because they didn't pay out trail commission. And a cynic would suggest that was the one of the reasons why the majority of IFAs were not quick to recommend investment trust companies. It didn't fit their business model. Now, since RDR, there's been a hope across the investment trust industry that we would see a considerable uptick in the amount of money being directed from IFAs now that we have, uh, in effect, a level playing field with open-ended funds. But it's been true to an extent Though I think for reasons of history and the fact that a number use some platforms that are not well suited or don't offer investment trusts, that hasn't really taken off in quite the way that we thought. Uh, and also, I think there is a degree of complexity with investment trust companies that many IFAs have not necessarily wished to embrace. Certainly, the association investment companies have done a huge amount of uh, education in, in this domain, You know, really informing IFAs of the merits of investment trust companies and some of their, their specialist features as well, such as gearing, which obviously you don't find in the open-ended world, for instance. We'll come back to the issue of complexity in a moment, Simon, because it's very important and fundamental to the whole investment trust issue. We might be giving the impression that somehow investment trusts are not a growth sector, in the words that they are declining as all these first institutions and then the larger wealth managers 
kind of pulled back a little bit from the sector. But that's not actually stopped the investment trust sector growing quite significantly over the last uh, 10 years. In fact, it's, uh, it's actually doing better than ever. So what's, what's actually happened? How do you explain that uh, apparent paradox? So there has been a, a renaissance, really, in the investment trust sector, particularly in the last 10 years, to be fair. Uh, and again, according to figures from the Association of Investment Companies, there are assets of over 200 billion now across the sector, around 400 companies or so, when you include VCT, certainly. Uh, and that would be uh, double what we saw 10 or 11 years ago, certainly. So I think the story here is that there are huge advantages with investing through a close-ended fund structure. It doesn't necessarily suit all asset classes, but I think it can be put to good use. And this really comes to the heart of why investment trusts are worthy of consideration. So over the last 12 years, um, basically in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, there has been a huge demand for sources of income. Income has been really one of the key investment themes. And in that story, investment trust companies have been very useful in providing solutions. I mean, I think we've talked before on our podcast about the AIC dividend heroes. And equally, we spent quite a bit of time talking about some of the more alternative esoteric asset classes that offer attractive levels of yield. And it's not just yield, but that's certainly been a very important part of driving the growth in the investment trust sector. So before the financial crisis, you were still able to get you know, 5% on your money in the bank. It seems impossible to believe that now. And a positive real interest rate as well, more than the rate of inflation. That's obviously gone. We're heading towards or pretty close to zero or even negative interest rates in some places, something we never thought we'd see in our lifetime. Uh, so as you say, the ability of, of investment trusts to provide uh, an income, a yield, if you like, in the region of four, five, six, uh, 7%, that kind of thing is, is very, very valuable indeed. And there's two different kinds of investment trusts that provide that level of income. We might briefly talk about them. First of all, there is uh, what we like to call sort of mainstream equity investment trusts, and in particular, equity income trusts, which include those dividend heroes you mentioned. And what is the advantage that these uh, types of equity investment trusts have when it comes to paying an income to their shareholders? So investment trusts are compelled, they're legally compelled, they have to pay out 85% of their income in any financial period in order to retain their investment trust status. So this is part of the legislation under which they operate. Now, with that 85% paid out, up to 15% can be retained, retained as revenue earnings. And this has allowed a number of investment trust companies to build up a pot of revenue reserves which have occasionally been drawn on in a number of cases in order to provide greater dividend uh, reliability or sustainability. And it's very much in the spotlight at the moment, given the backdrop of dividend cuts and suspensions across the UK market and to a greater extent, uh, the global marketplace. But what this has allowed is a number of investment trust companies to generate records of consecutive years of dividend growth. The leader being City of London Investment Trust, I think uh, now around, I'm going to say about 54 years off the top of my head, a very impressive record. And there are a number not too far behind it as well. And that's really been done on the back of this ability to retain a proportion of revenue. So that has been certainly one of the attractions of the listed close-ended fund or the investment trust structure. And that is a differentiator from the equivalent open-ended funds who, uh, unfortunately, at times when the dividend backdrop is poor, that gets passed on to, to their investors. So for those particular investment trusts, it means that they can get a smoother, more reliable flow of dividend income from their shareholding in the investment trust because the company can top it up 
from these reserves when things get a bit choppy. And boy, have they been choppy this year. We've seen a very sharp fall in many share prices this year. And so if you've got this ability to draw on reserves, that is a positive for people who rely on income. They, they need a fixed percentage every year. We might just briefly divert to talk about another way in which investment trusts can provide at least a consistent, but not necessarily smooth level of income. And that is what we call enhanced dividends. Perhaps you could explain what an enhanced dividend is again. So a number of years ago, about uh, four or five years ago, there was a change in the tax legislation, which meant for the first time it became tax efficient for onshore. So that's uh, investment trust companies domiciled in the UK to pay out capital as income. So what this meant was that realised profits or realised gains could be paid out as, as dividends. So um, we've seen a small number of investment trust companies adopt these powers and use them. Um, and what it means is that they're not necessarily reliant on the revenue generated in a particular period or even those uh, revenue reserves that they've built up over a number of years. It's another string to their bow. So it has proven controversial. Not everybody appreciates it. And many people have pointed out that there is a, a tax inefficiency of converting capital profits uh, into income, uh, though it's fair to say that in a number of instances where investment trust companies have adopted this as a policy, uh, it certainly led to uh, an increase in their ratings. So in other words, their discounts have tightened on the back of greater demand for shareholders, again, looking for sources of income. It's worth mentioning at this point, I think, that uh, if you hold an investment trust, you are entitled to put it into your self-invested personal pension. And one of the consequences of that, of course, is that you don't have to worry too much about the tax rates that are payable on those uh, realisation, those dividends, whether they come out of capital or out of revenue, at least until you take the money out of your SIP. Uh, is that a fair summary of that situation? I think that's right. And I think that explains why, despite the apparent tax inefficiencies of paying out capital as, as income, that the people have still uh, opted for that. They've been prepared to buy those shares. Uh, and one assumes that that's because they hold them through ICES and SIPs, those tax efficient wrappers. So it means they don't have any particular disadvantage by going down that route. So obviously the, the SIP and ISA legislation or, or regulation is a very helpful thing for private investors and investment trusts are certainly not disadvantaged and indeed have these advantages to deploy when it comes to meeting uh, individual investor demand. And that's, I think, as you say, one of the reasons why they have become more popular in recent years. Now, let's also talk about, I mentioned complexity. Now, one of the things that is often said about investment trusts is that they are more complex. As you say, IFAs tend to say that. That's their reason for not uh, doing more research into them and so on. And I think it's fair to say they are more complicated, but they're not uh, any more complicated than investing in any other kind of listed company, uh, with one exception, perhaps, and that is the issue of discounts. Discounts are fundamental to the understanding of investment trusts. And if you don't understand what a discount is or how it tends to move and operate over time, then you probably shouldn't be thinking about investing in investment trusts at all. But it's not that difficult to understand what a discount is. So let's turn our attention to that, which is, as I say, often seen as the most complex issue in the investment trust space. And start off very simply by explaining what is a discount or a premium, which is its mirror image. So a discount is the difference between the share price and the net asset value per share of a, of a company. And that's assuming that the share price is lower. So to put some numbers around that, say if, for instance, an investment trust company had an NAV of 100p per share and it happened to be traded at 90p, then it would be on a 10% discount to its NAV. Conversely, 
if the share price for whatever reason were to be at 110p in that example, then it'd be on a 10% premium. So that the maths is relatively straightforward. But you're absolutely right. It is a complexity because essentially people, not always, but more often than not, will invest for NAV reasons. They will look at the underlying asset class or they will look at the uh, investment manager in question uh, and back them to drive NAV performance. And clearly, you would hope over time that that would lead to better share price performance, but it is not necessarily the case. So, you know, we can all think of instances where uh, NAV performance has actually been very respectable, but because an investment trust company has been derated, it's gone out to a discount, then actually it's a slightly disappointing return for, for investors. So a couple of points you might make there. I mean, number one is the discount is important. It will help to determine the kind of return you make from an investment trust over a period of time. But it's, I think, worth first point you can make is that if you buy shares in an investment trust at a 10% discount and you end up selling them at a 10% discount, in other words, the discount hasn't moved over time, then basically you're going to get pretty much the same return as you, you would have had if they had been trading at par all the way through. Uh, am I right about that? That is correct. That is correct. And I mean, I mean, people do like discounts. People often like paying 90p or 80p for, for something that's worth, worth a pound. So uh, you do find not just retail investors, but a number of professional investors that look to seek to take advantage of discounts, particularly when there is a reason or a catalyst why that discount might narrow. So, you know, we often talk about the double whammy. You know, you look for an out of favor asset class where the share price of the investment trust is, is on a wide discount. And then that asset class comes back into favor or the manager starts performing when the NAV obviously at that stage rises and the discount narrows. Now, that double whammy of uh, NAV performance coming through and the share price performance coming through really does lead to a strong outperformance. Uh, though, obviously, the reverse is also true. Uh, an investment trust company trading at a tight discount or even on a premium rating, when it's a bit of a bump in the road, the NAV performance is disappointing uh, and the discount widens out. And that can be quite a, a savage performance. So this is perhaps the most fundamental difference between uh an investment trust and what we call an open-ended fund, a unit trust, an OIC or something like that, which don't have discounts or premiums, at least uh, in the same way, well, not at all, effectively, in real terms. Because if an investor in a unit trust wants his money back, uh, the unit trust company has to give him or her that money back uh, at NAV, plus or minus a small charge around the spread, what's called the spread. Uh, but it's a pretty small thing. So basically, there's a fundamental difference between investment trusts and open-ended funds in that sense. Now, there's two ways you can look at that. You can say that's a disadvantage because obviously at any given point in time, if you want to get your money out, you know you can get it out at NAV with an open-ended fund, whereas you may not be able to do that with an investment trust. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it's uh, most people who invest in investment trusts, like you or I, we believe that the benefit on the other side is just as significant. And that benefit is that the managers of the investment trust don't have to buy and sell their investments just because one of the shareholders or investors wants to take their money out at any time. Is that an important factor? I would agree with you. But just to add to one point, this idea that we've opened any funds that you can uh, get your money out at any stage that you, you wish to do so. You're right nine out of 10 times, but there have been some well-publicized moments when it hasn't been the case. Uh, obviously, last year with the Woodford Equity Income Fund probably being the best known in the UK equity income or even in the equity along in the equity space, but also with commercial property as well. Um, people investing through open-ended funds into uh, commercial property have a number of times over the last 12 years, going back to the financial crisis, found themselves gated, which means that you can't get your money out 
uh, with the open-ended fund. Now, with the investment trust company, if those equivalent investment trust companies at that stage on commercial property, you could still sell your shares. Now, they would invariably be at quite wide discounts at that moment in time. But the point is that should, for any reason you wish to uh, liquidate your investment, you could. Whether that's a good idea or not, of course, is an interesting subject in itself. But let's strike on to then this perhaps fundamental issue then is what determines whether an investment trust trades with a discount or a premium? I mean, the simple answer, I guess, is supply and demand, but it's a bit more complicated than that, I would suggest. Let's just stick, first of all, with what we call mainstream equity trusts. We'll come back and talk about different kinds of investment trust uh, after that. But talking about a, a mainstream equity investment trust where they're mainly buying shares of uh, existing uh, listed or in some cases unlisted companies where the price is known virtually every day. So that means the NAV, you should be able to rely on that, you would think. So what is it that drives a discount or a premium in those circumstances? I think there are a number of factors. Performance probably at the top of the list. Those investment trust companies that have uh, strong long-term track records uh, often command premium ratings. Probably the best example at the moment is the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, which has generated very strong returns for shareholders for a number of years now. And unsurprisingly, that has traded uh, at a premium rating now for a number of years. Um, I think another important aspect is yield. We talked about the importance of income to investors and those investment trust companies that have been able to show that they can generate consistent, sustainable dividends have tended to trade at a tighter rating. So if you look at City of London Investment Trust, um, invariably that's traded at a premium rating. I think the shareholder base is increasingly important, actually. Certainly with um, those uh, investment trusts where we've seen a transition in the shareholder base, maybe away from more institutional uh, shareholders to retail shareholders who often take very long-term views and rightly so on their investments where a market maker struggles to find a line of stock. In other words, it's not a kind of friendly institutional shareholder to, to make a call to, to see if they can cover a short on a, on a market maker's book, then invariably the price will rise in quick time. And I think where we have seen those investment trusts with growing retail followings, then quite often those have stronger ratings, often trading on premium ratings at all. So I'd say they're the three key aspects at present that determine an investment trust rating. And they can move quite significantly. I think it's only fair to say that. I mean, during the very savage sell-off in uh, March this year, up to March this year, and also during 2008-9, what tends to happen is when there's a precipitous market decline, discounts generally tend to widen. And vice versa, when the market is roaring ahead quite well, uh, discounts tend to come in a little bit. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, there's a very strong correlation between market moves and uh, sector average discount. And, and basically, as markets rise, so the sector average discount tends to narrow. And then the reverse is also true. And obviously, intuitively, that does make sense. So as you said earlier, I mean, investment trusts, like most funds, should really be a long term investment. Obviously, the discount allows you opportunities to perhaps make some additional return by, as you say, buying at a big discount and hopefully being able to sell or to trim your holding at a narrower discount. That's an extra source of return, but you need to be quite skillful to do that. And the fundamental stance should be one of buy and hold in most cases. I think it's fair that most advisors would suggest that. You mentioned before, though, that uh, interesting change in the rules or what uh, investment trusts allow to do, which enabled institutions to exit the sector. Uh, but that also gave uh, boards of directors more powers to try and control the discount what's called introduce a discount control mechanism. 
So perhaps you could explain, first of all, what a discount control mechanism is or might be. There may be more than one type. And then we can go on afterwards to talk about uh, uh, how many trusts actually implement such things and whether they are effective or not. First of all, just tell us about discount control mechanisms. What are they and uh, how do they work? So most investment trust boards will have a discount control in mind. Uh, now, whether that's publicly stated or whether that's held back, so it's, it's private, known only to the board, will vary. Uh, but a number of investment trusts have said that they will seek to protect a, a discount at a particular level, and they will invariably use share buybacks in, in order to do that. So if the disconnect between the share price and the NAV comes to a certain stage, say it's at 10%, then the buyback program kicks in and, and shares are bought through the marketplace. We've got a few investment trust companies that actually pursue a zero discount policy, and the, probably the best known is, is Personal Assets, uh, a multi-asset fund of over a billion pounds worth of assets now, and they've pursued that policy for a, a number of years. But frankly, it's relatively rare in the investment trust sector. Uh, personal Assets can do it uh, because their underlying portfolio is relatively liquid. So if they need to raise capital in order to pursue buybacks, they, they can do so. But for most investment trust companies, there's a degree of illiquidity in their underlying portfolios that makes it a bit trickier. So what about the flip side of that coin, which is that some trusts, as you mentioned already, like Scottish Mortgage and uh, some of these income generating trusts, they uh, trade at a premium quite regularly. Do investment trusts have the ability to issue new shares when their shares are at a premium? And, and do the shareholders have to approve that as well? The answer is yes, shareholders do have to uh, approve. And I think the standard approval is up to around about 10%, though it can be 20%. Uh, it depends exactly uh, where the investment trust company is sitting at any particular stage. But yes, with shareholder approval, new shares can be issued at a premium. One or two in the past have looked to issue shares uh, at a discount, but that's highly controversial. But what that means, the ability to issue shares at a premium, it is important because it means it provides liquidity for an investment trust company. So new shares are readily available. And it also means that the premium ratings don't get too extended. And there have been a couple of well-known instances over the last 20 years where an investment trust company may have enjoyed a good period of performance and it's seen a strong pickup in interest as a result and seen its premium really get up to quite high levels. A good example would be a fund then known British Empire Trust, now known as AVI Global Opportunities, probably hit about a 10% premium in 2006-07 on the back of some very strong numbers. Uh, unfortunately, it was derated in the financial crisis 08-09 uh, and went out to a double-digit discount. And that round trip is quite a, a painful one for shareholders, it has to be said. Quite a different balancing act, though, isn't it? Uh, because on the one hand, an existing shareholder might think, well, it's very nice that my shares are trading above net asset value. On the other hand, the board has to have regard to the long-term future of the trust and whether or not its uh, premium is actually deterring more investors coming on board, which may or may not be a good thing. I think that just speaks to another issue, which is we used to say that the other differentiating feature between investment trust and open-ended fund was that the capital that the investment trust was deploying was basically fixed. In other words, it had issued so many shares and that didn't tend to change over time. And therefore, the uh, fund manager had the freedom not to be influenced by changes in uh, demand or supply for the shares. But that isn't quite so true now. Can you give any kind of indication of the scale of new shares being issued that uh, investment trusts have been doing in uh, recent times? So just to put some numbers around that, if you look at the, the investment trust universe, let's call it 320 companies or so, probably about a third are trading on premium ratings or around anything at the moment. Now, of that, say, 100 or so companies, 
this has been a more difficult year, clearly. But I would imagine there'd be about 40 to 50 investment trust companies in that range who have been making some uh, issuance of new shares so far in 2020. Although, to be fair, it's mostly at the, the, the top end, the largest uh, investment trust companies, those that are on particularly strong terror performance that have, have done the most issuance. So we've mentioned Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, but other names will be Worldwide Healthcare and Allianz Technology have issued uh, substantial amounts of shares this year. Whereas if you go back over a longer period of time, we also see names such as City of London Investment Trust and Finsbury Growth and Income. Both of them have uh, very strong track records in the UK equity income peer group. So I think it would be wrong to say that the majority of investment trust companies have effectively become semi-open-ended vehicles. You're absolutely right. We, all, we talk about one of the key advantages of investment trust companies as being this captive pool of capital. And although that argument is just slightly eroded by the fact that a number are issuing new shares, I wouldn't necessarily overstate it. I mean, certainly when you talk to a fund manager who's responsible for both an investment trust and the equivalent open-ended fund, invariably they will tell you that it's a, a lot easier to run the investment trust portfolio than the open-ended fund because they don't have to manage day-to-day liquidity flows either in or out as they do on the open-ended side. And it just means they can take those longer-term investment decisions and deploy gearing without necessarily worrying about having to liquidate a proportion of the portfolio at relatively short notice. That is a fundamental uh, factor behind, I think, the success of investment trusts. On this issue of issuing shares, if you're issuing shares because they're trading at a premium, where do those shares come from? And are there any other ways in which investment trusts can actually issue new shares? Uh, And if so, again, what is the process as far as shareholder approval is concerned? So a number of investment trust companies have kind of regular issuance programs. So TAP issuance, as it's referred to, it varies a little bit, but they are shares made available through an investment trust company's broker. So they're made available through through the marketplace. So new shares will be issued via the broker according to the approval limits set by shareholders. Uh, In addition to that, we also see uh, issuance through a number of different mechanisms, such as C-shares or placings. We've also seen subscription shares in recent years, although no money has been raised through that route uh, so far in 2020. So there are different ways of, of raising new money for investment trust companies. And many would argue that it's actually important. We talked about the growth of the industry. It is important that investment trust companies grow, that they provide liquidity through new issuance. Um, and there are also benefits in terms of the um, trading on the secondary market side. They become more liquid shares. And also, as an investment trust company grows, that the expense ratio, so the fixed expenses, are effectively priced over a wider pool of assets. So growth is uh, essentially a good thing in many instances. OK, well, let's take a deep breath and very quickly just try and explain the difference between a placing and a C-share issue. Uh, I know this is one of your areas of expertise, Simon, so I'm sure you can put it very simply, but also um, perhaps you just mentioned the difference between issuing shares from Treasury and issuing them as newly issued shares. A placing is normally referred to as an existing um, share class, so the ordinary share class, and it will be placed out at a particular share price, invariably at a premium to NAV. Um, with a C share, that's actually a little bit different. So the way that C shares work, that's a separate share class. The idea behind a C-share is trying to raise a pool of money that will invariably be invested over a period of time that will then be converted into the ordinary share class. And the reason why people will look to do a C-share is where the underlying asset class is less liquid. And therefore, rather than dilute the existing ordinary shareholders, 
it allows the fund manager to deploy that capital. So a good example of that would be Hypnosis Songs Fund. They recently raised uh, some money for a C-share and they've been in the press uh, in deploying some of that capital. And as and when it gets to 80, 90% of whatever the metric is, almost nearly fully invested, then that will convert across to the ordinary share class. With treasury shares, this is the ability uh, of an investment trust company to, rather than just buy back and cancel their existing shares, they can actually place them into treasury. And why would they do that? Well, the answer is, should they be in a position to reissue those shares from treasury? There's actually some cost benefits of that as well. So it's a slightly more efficient way of reissuing or issuing shares. But the key thing in all this is that, well, is it the case that every investor has an opportunity to participate in all these different kinds of uh, uh, share issuance? But the important factor behind all that is the fact that they are very rarely in practice or indeed by convention not issued in such a way that it dilutes the interest of the existing shareholders. In fact, the C-share structure is designed to actually prevent any kind of cash drag for the existing shareholders. So I think that's actually a fundamental point. But is it actually the case that uh, individual investors can access all types of new share issues? There will be some restrictions depending on the type of uh, investor. Again, it will depend on the investment company in question, but quite often there will be some uh, safeguards, just depending on the the asset class and the type of investment trust company in question. So, for example, those on the specialist funds market, specialist fund segment, as it's been renamed, there are more protections around that. So invariably, retail investors will be struggling to to access those type of issuance from those type of funds. I mean, I think it's important to emphasize that point about uh, dilution because it is one of the grievances that some individual investors perceive they have in the way that uh, companies sometimes operate in raising money. Uh, but it is slightly different in the investment trust space. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.